Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. My name is Sharonik Bosu. I am a doctoral candidate in the English department at New York University. And I co-host another podcast, called High Theory, which is available at hightheory.net, where we take apart difficult ideas from the academy in very short episodes. Today, we are talking about a wonderful new book titled Rethinking Markets in Modern India, Embedded Exchange and Contested Jurisdiction, edited by Ajay Gandhi, Barbara Harris-White, Douglas E. Haynes, and Sebastian Schwicki. Uh, it was published in September 2020 by Cambridge University Press, I also want to add how valuable this book has been to me personally, because I am working on South Asian economic writing. Um, we have two of the editors here with us today, and so we are very pleased to welcome Ajay Gandhi, who is as assistant professor at Leiden University, and Sebastian Schwicki, who is the head of Max Weber Foundation's India office at New Delhi. And I will uh, welcome Ajay and Sebastian. Um, I will begin the conversation by asking Ajay and Sebastian about their respective academic journeys, which culminated in this project. Yes, um, thank you very much, um, Sharnak. It's a really nice opportunity to uh, discuss our book. Um, just in terms of the path uh, to the book, um, I was trained primarily as an urban anthropologist, and my first project uh, was very much within the field of urban anthropology. It was a study of um, different groups and spaces and um, sentiments in Old Delhi. That's a project that I'm um, trying to finish now as a monograph. And then this project came about through my postdoctoral research um, which was done at the Max Planck Institute in Göttingen in Germany. And that's where I had met Sebastian. Um, and uh, that came about really through doing fieldwork in a new space for me in central Bombay, um, a space that I was pretty unfamiliar with. But of course, M Mumbai or uh, Bombay is a, a famously 
a commercial city. It's a city where um, everybody is hustling. And so as I started to do my postdoctoral research there, I, I really became very aware in a, in a, in a manner I hadn't been previously of um, the fascinating way in which exchange and market activity was at the center of so much of um, social life. So anthropologically, I got more and more interested in the literature within economic anthropology and economic history. And then um, as I met Sebastian over the years in Göttingen, um, and we we started to talk together and to read stuff together, um, those ideas came to fruition slowly. Yes, uh, so from my side, uh, I'm a bit of a disciplinary maverick uh, in, in some ways. So I originally come from uh, political science and uh, actually political economy. Uh, in, in that way, I've been a South Asianist all my academic career. And uh, when I shifted to Göttingen, where I also met Ajay, uh, I shifted towards economic history. So uh, I've also been dabbling uh, in anthropology to some extent, but uh, nowadays I would describe myself as an economic historian primarily. Um, and uh, I started working on uh, a history of extra-legal credit markets in uh, India, in Benares actually, um, from the late 19th century onwards. Uh, it's uh, something that uh, where my monograph is soon coming out, uh, finally, after a long period of time. So uh, uh, this is how I approached the topic originally. And uh, so when Ajay and I met, uh, him looking at some topics like black money, uh, as he does in uh, this book, um, or for examples like smuggling and gold, uh, uh, these kind of questions, uh, it immediately uh, gelled in, in the way that we knew what we wanted to study. And uh, in, in many ways, this book is an outcome of uh, that kind of, of meeting of two people working on sort of similar, but still quite different uh, topics. So as a kind of a natural follow-up to that question, um, what was the brief uh, for this book itself and how did it come together uh, what sort of message you sent out to prospective contributors, uh, if you'd like to share a little bit. Okay, so maybe uh, I start on this question. Uh, it, this is really um, what I was interested in uh, when we started thinking about uh, these topics was to, to understand exchange in the broadest possible way, uh, something with all its complexity uh, at like you could say the operational logics of exchange. So this is how I moved into uh, this particular topic. And I very soon realized how how complex this topic really is so that uh, you couldn't really encompass uh, this, this topic in any single work that you would read or that you could ever hope to write. Um, so uh, th this is how... I moved into uh, this particular topic and uh, then Ajay and I were basically coming up with the idea of uh, like starting a reading group, really just the two of us together, uh, where we would meet and read uh, the significant body of literature that actually exists on this topic, um, including in South Asia, but not necessarily restricted to that. Um, so. 
gradually the, this idea took shape that uh, what we should do is to organize a workshop that would include historians and anthropologists that would bring these two disciplines together that would probably even uh, include some uh, people from, from like neighboring disciplines, uh, maybe even some people who would not specifically normally be associated with the idea of working on markets, uh, but where we thought like their works were actually speaking to the topic of uh, markets. And uh, so, so this is something that I think uh, really to some extent sets apart uh, this book that uh, has now come out uh, last September. Uh, so when you look at the, the list of contributors, um, you notice this almost immediately. Like um, take, for example, take uh, Pujit Mukherjee, who's a brilliant medical historian and uh, he's been working for a long time on the history of knowledge. Uh, but once we reached out to him, he immediately came up with ideas that could be linked fairly well with the book. And eventually, uh, like he settled on the study of uh, what he was calling bazaar grimoires, uh, so collections of magic spells that are used uh, even nowadays by, by petty traders and shopkeepers and uh, similar kind of, of market participants uh, to ensure business success. So it's not what you would typically expect when you're opening a book on markets, but uh, all that actually tells you is that many of these books have overlooked quite a number of topics that can be associated with the study of markets. Um, just an, as an aside, I will uh, let uh, uh, Ajay speak uh, about his own journey into this book as well. Uh, but just as an aside, I have used Pujit's magic spells that he is citing in uh, the, this volume for, for teaching purposes. Uh, I have been teaching at uh, the Indian Institute of Management in Calcutta for two years until fairly recently. Uh, so it's a business school. You're teaching management students uh, and confronting them with something like this, uh, with something that, like, yes, all of them knew from their own experience of growing up uh, they knew that it was very much part of the practices of uh, like business people. Uh, but nevertheless, it just seems just so weird um, for, for, for these students. It's, it's, uh, it's been an experience for me too. So uh, it's really something uh, where we were also learning quite a lot while we were setting up uh, this, this volume. Anyway, so I will uh, let Ajay speak now. Yeah, just to um, fill in a little bit of what um, Sebastian has said. Um, so yes, at the end of 2016 in Göttingen, um, we had organized a workshop. Um, and if I remember correctly, that workshop was organized um, not per se on uh, markets or exchange, but on this kind of idea of the transactional as, an, as a realm that we felt um, had, had at various moments in... Um, the social science and history of South Asia being uh, visible or being important. So, for example, in my own discipline in anthropology, um, two of the really foundational um, anthropologists, Frederick Barth and uh, McKim Marriott, 
um, who had worked in the 20th century on the region, they had uh, put at the center of uh, some of their major works the idea of transactional culture as something that gives us insight into the cosmological, moral, um, political, interactional aspects of um, culture and community. Um, but of course, the the economy and um, the transactional space has has radically transformed since uh, people like Barth and and Marriott wrote. So I think that as Sebastian and I were um, in our <laughs> two person reading club um, and slowly, you know, thinking about the kind of archive of of reflection on these topics, we really started to get excited by um, the way in which we could mobilize people that are. Um, doing contemporary ethnographic work, um, empirical work, uh, and also um, new archival work uh, to think about these questions anew in a very different um, economic context now, um, in a context where many things like, say, mobile spectrum or um, uh, kidneys and uh, wombs are um, marketized uh, objects. And so what so to, to kind of rethink um, the question of the transactional, we had this workshop where we had um, a good number of the contributors to the volume. And then in the workshop itself, what had come out was um, very strongly beyond the rubric of embedded exchange, which is one of the three pillars of the book. Um, what had come out was the importance or the centrality of regulation or what we came to think of as the contested jurisdictions of exchange. Um, and so the, the, the process of you know writing the book um, and accumulating people really came as, as over the years from 2015, 16 onwards, um, we were, we were thinking about what are the adjacent um, uh, ideas and theories and and kind of clusters that we can use. And then, uh, like Sebastian said, we we reached out to more and more people and found that they were very much um, had a, a chunk of their research that um, spoke to these ideas. Yes, there's uh, one other thing. Like, uh, so even before we actually organized the workshop uh, that uh, this book is the outcome of. Uh, so we had actually like reached out to Barbara and Doug and uh, so reaching out to them, of course, was uh, fantastic for the purposes of eventually like coalescing into this uh, book project uh, for us, because, of course, Barbara and Doug had uh, uh, all these contacts, all this knowledge about uh, who was working um, on what kind of topics. And uh, it helped us immensely uh, in the end to to. Uh, to set up this volume. So, uh, like, we, we had this workshop, we uh, then started really conversing with Barbara and Doug for a long period of time, how to uh, really bring together uh, the various uh, contributors that we had selected or that we uh, had asked to contribute uh, to the volume. And uh, it, it took us the better part of a year, actually, to... Um, even reach the stage where we could confidently say like this is exactly the kind of book that we want to propose to a publisher um, it was a very intense process of uh, discussing among the four of us uh, how we would actually frame uh, the book how we would try to bring uh, the, the, the various approaches that uh, this book was actually covering um, together into uh, a framework that was broad enough to actually encompass all these different contributions. 
Yes, when our listeners will read this book, it's a massively formidable uh, methodological project. It's it's amazing how you have uh, brought this project together in 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 this really comprehensive book form. Uh, Ajay has already mentioned contested jurisdictions. On that note, and in terms of um, organizing principles and ways to understand Indian markets, the book offers three thematic rubrics, which are embedded exchange, uh, contested jurisdiction, and pliable markets. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how or what kind of scholarship these rubrics build on and um, the theoretical and empirical interventions that they make? Okay, so briefly from my side, uh, uh, the, these are um, concepts, uh, conceptualizations of uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the themes that guide the contributors and actually bringing their own approaches into the book. So this is uh, how I uh, was primarily seeing these uh, three themes that we, we, we developed here, basically. We wanted to... to um, have something that would embrace the contributions uh, that are part of this book instead of uh, pressing them into a particular direction. So uh, embedded exchange, contested jurisdiction, pliable markets, these are uh, concepts that are fairly open uh, that anyone who is working on something that is as complex as a market, as complex as exchange, would immediately know they are encountering this uh, again and again in their research. Um, so uh, there, there is not not any scholar on markets who would not uh, immediately understand uh, that, yes, these are concepts that uh, have been, that they have encountered actually uh, in, in the process of their research, wherever that research actually is based on and whatever type of market it is actually looking at, whatever aspect of a market um, is uh, this person is actually looking at. So um, uh, let me just maybe uh, give the example of, of embedded exchange. So obviously embeddedness has been uh, a concept that has been around for such a long uh, time. It's one of the most fundamental categories when you're speaking of markets. Um, so we needed to very slightly redefine this concept uh, for the purposes of this book um, uh, in order to create this, this leeway for dialogue among our contributors. Uh, so Polanyi had originally used this concept fairly openly that uh, the, the social like embeddedness is the social that the market is embedded into. Um, but in substantivist dis- discourse, and to some extent, uh, even in later anthropology, um, uh, this increasingly became associated mostly or primarily with kinship and community. And uh, very obviously, it very often is. Uh, you can see that in uh, the volume uh, by the contribution of David Rutner, for example. And uh, let me just add here that was absolutely amazing for someone like me who was from a younger generation. Uh, to work together with David Ratner on a book project. Uh, his work has always been one of the ways of the, like, uh, that I think about defining the standard of doing a history of South Asian commerce. Uh, so basically what we wanted to point out is uh, that, yes, there is no homo economicus. At the same point of time, there is no 
homo collectivus as, uh, as well. It's, it's, it's just uh, that embeddedness must be a more open category. Uh, in my own work on moneylenders in Benares on extra-legal credit markets, uh, you, well, these are markets that lack very strong collective elements beyond a structure of gossip, beyond information flows on reputations. Um, it's a market that is highly embedded into these reputational information flows, but it's not embedded in uh, other collective elements beyond this gossip. So basically, we needed to, to open the concept of embeddedness a little bit in order to create room for many of our contributions to actually uh, look at it. Um, maybe Ajay wants to come in here. Um, yeah, I can say something um, about that as well. Um, like Sebastian is saying that I think one of the one of the virtues of the volume is that um, we are really building off of um, some senior scholars who are have done work in this broad um, area for decades, not just people like Barbara and Doug, um, but also people like David Rudner, who've been thinking about the relationship of the social, the political and economic in ways that don't presume their kind of artificial demarcation. And I think that that's, a, that's something that is important to highlight, say, in terms of the second rubric um, you mentioned of contested jurisdiction, because part of the both the um, intellectual and the political work of, um, you could say, modern capitalism is to is to kind of presume a sort of um, self-regulating or self-catalyzing domain of the economic or transactional um, that implies that somehow they're naturally separated from uh, the question of the moral or the cosmological or the social. So to give an a very tangible example um, from contemporary India, the farmers' protests which began uh, last year and which are still continuing at present um, the, the only way that the regulations which were um, which were enacted uh, to radically reform the agrarian markets could have unfolded and been persuasive persuasive um, was insofar as they um, posited that that there's uh, a way in which um, uh, a kind of universal rationality can can be imposed on what is a very messy and so-called inefficient sphere of exchange. Now, on the ground, of course, um, uh, people like farmers very much understand that these um, are not objective uh, ideas that somehow have some sort of, um, they're not hovering in the air without any kind of, um, uh, without any interest. They are very interested regulations. And yet part of, you could say, the, 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 the puzzle of contemporary capitalism in many parts of the world is that we continue to um, be intellectually and politically indebted to ideas that um, presume there's a kind of sort of impartiality or objectivity. Now, just in terms of the rubric of contested jurisdiction, one thing we wanted to point out with that idea was that um, insofar as we think of markets, we, we tend to kind of reflexively think of them as something that is framed by um, the state and the state is understood in a fairly homogenous or monolithic sense. And it's seen as the primary entity which does that framing. Now, if you look at it on the ground, um, it's, it, it's 
very, very different situation. And what, what we wanted to point to with this idea of contested jurisdiction was to really get people to think about the fact that um, the number of authorities that have significant sway that can help to shape um, the way that exchange and market activity unfolds isn't restricted to the state. The state is only one of the regulative bodies um, on the ground. And so two of the chapters that really nicely illustrate that are Matthew Hull's chapter on uh, lotteries in the Punjab, where he points out the fact that the, the legal lottery, the state lottery, is is only actually one of the lotteries that's on the ground. And in, in fact, the 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 uh, there's a there's a uh, a surplus of illegal lotteries that depend on the infrastructure and share many of the norms and conventions of the legal lottery system. But they are, in a sense, he nicely shows, um, Matthew, how interdependent or codependent these these um, forms of exchange are in the case of lotteries. And similarly, in Jharkhand, uh, Roger Begrich, he nicely shows in a very different context, in the context of um, both legal and illegal alcohol um, uh, markets, the ways in which there's a kind of, there's a, again, a, a sort of oscillation and a, a kind of codependency um, happening where you can't simply say that the state is the only party that's relevant in in arbitrating um, how exchange happens on the ground. So we really wanted to bring to the fore the, the plural or the kind of multiple sovereignties that are um, at really at the center of how exchange unfolds. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yes, I mean, uh, that's just, if you think about markets, markets are very often depicted in ways as if, as Ajay's put it, they are self-regulating. It's uh, uh, the, the idea of the invisible hand and all uh, the, these kind of, of things, basically, that leads us to believe that uh, there's one thing about it that is actually quite interesting, and that is that markets, well, they are not self-regulating, but they are seeking regulation. Uh, markets take place, uh, exchange is taking place in uh, this, this environment of uh, fairly pervasive uncertainty. Uh, that This uncertainty needs to be handled. And for that, you need some sort of governance. And market participants are, in fact, seeking out structures that may help them in creating structures of jurisdiction. And if, for example, a state is coming in or if the state is removing itself from uh, the governance of a market, uh, these market participants are tapping into 
alternative structures that are available uh, to them to make markets work. And this is a constant process. It's constantly going on. It's extremely fluid. Um, so there's always a form of authority, of jurisdiction on markets that is being sought. And sometimes these practices in, uh, practices of, of uh, governing the market uh, are made use of simultaneously. Sometimes they are used in parallel. Um, sometimes they are in, in conflict with each other. So contested jurisdiction is really uh, highlighting regulation and governance, but it's not a straightforward uh, contest between state and market, state and individual, state and society. Uh, there, there are many different ways in which this can be looked at. So uh, Doug Haynes, for example, uh, is, is showing how the advent of print advertising shifts the control, shifted the control over the meaning of a product uh, away from middlemen and from the, the retail segment uh, that uh, was located in the bazaar and it's shifting it towards the pretty petty pr uh, producer. So this petty producer could be a trader in the bazaar as well. And in fact, he often was or she, but there's still a process of contesting the authority to define the rules of exchange in this example. And it has nothing to do with the state. It has nothing to do with an abstract market as it is being thought of as, as self-regulating. It's just various market participants um, who are making use of the structures that are available to them. So the question of, um, you know, the nature of the market and the, of the nature of the markets and the, the ways in which we can sort of determine the nature of the markets through certain empirical processes, um, framing that in framing that in terms of region, um, whatever that word means, um, why would you say uh, South Asia is a good place to study markets, both um, you know anthropologically and historically, and uh, how would you say that? the dimensions of markets in South Asia direct research towards uh, these three um, thematic rubrics that you just described. Uh, all right, maybe I come in here briefly before I pass on to Ajay. This is a question that both of us, of course, uh, are, are very keen to, to explore. Uh, so let me put this very briefly. So this is a book on South Asia. There is no doubt about it. Uh, but it should not be taken as a book that only speaks to South Asianists. Um, so what we had very early on decided on that uh, was that uh, we wanted to, to have a book that was empirically rich. And uh, for this empirical richness, uh, for practical reasons, you need to minimize the amount of translation that actually goes into this. Uh, so uh, it's absolutely crucial to understand that the, the problem actually is translation. So markets are very good at translations in, in, in general. They're very good at making things intellectual across structures of embeddedness. Markets that are embedded in social structures, and that means markets. Uh, they, they take on operational logics uh, according to, to how these operational logics are expressed in various societies. And obviously, South Asia is no different in this particular respect. Uh, in turn, when we are looking at it as scholars, we are 
reproducing some of these opera uh, the, the way in which these operational logics are being expressed. But in general, the market is actually quite capable of translating them, of making the differences intelligible. Uh, just, I mean, to, to, to give you uh, some example, I mean, look at what we now call global capitalism, basically, which is uh, a worldwide economy that is interconnected, uh, that creates very similar intelligibles of how to exchange. Um, or if you want to think about it historically, look at what we are calling the bazaar economy, which is uh, expanding a major part of the world from Morocco to Indonesia. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's really quite a number of diff distinct cultural areas that are subsumed there. Uh, let me just uh, use this opportunity to point uh, to, to a recent book publication by uh, another South Asian historian, uh, Frank Perlin, a book that is called uh, The City Intelligible, um, which is really mm -hmm. dealing very much with uh, these kind of, of, of topic. And it's a fascinating book uh, that I really highly recommend. Um, so basically, we wanted to, to have um, uh, something that was empirically rich. And if we are constantly translating it to an audience, uh, we, because we uh, are looking at Africa, we're looking at various regions uh, of the world together, basically, then we, we have to do the translations. But actually, in the end, I think, and uh, this is a really deeply held belief, that anybody who, who studies markets is actually quite capable of doing the translation for him or herself. So uh, th this is really uh, uh, something where we don't, do not need to make the effort and we could focus on being empirically rich instead of just translating the different concepts of embeddedness that we are encountering uh, uh, from one region to the other. Uh, so just as a final comment before I hand over to, to Ajay here, and uh, really I'm speaking as a historian here. Uh, so this book that we've come up with, um, it's a book that covers discussions on exchange in South Asia, but in South Asia from about the 17th century onwards. Uh, most of it, of course, is on the last about 150 to 200 years, but it goes back that far. So if you're thinking of a kind of common intelligibility, uh, pre-colonial or even colonial South Asian markets uh, are embedded in much more different societies uh, compared to their present counterparts uh, that you can nowadays find in, in even in a truly global comparison. Yeah, just to um, uh, a little bit expand on what um, Sebastian has said, uh, I do think it the book the one of the book's um, selling points is um, that each of the chapters is really um, empirically uh, very very original. Um, it's it's uh, the historians, the anthropologists, um, whether they're focusing. Um, as Sebastian says, on a time 150 years ago or the present, they're all offering new material to think with. And I think that is um, that it was very important to us in terms of framing the book. Um, we didn't want to be theorizing um, at a higher altitude without really um, grounding the reader in, in, in understanding the specificity of 
regulative practices, of certain um, moral idioms, of um, jurisdictional ideas that have had and continue to have a lot of influence in shaping um, markets and exchange in South Asia. At the same time, um, I, I would very much agree with what Sebastian said that that if somebody who is working on, say, West Africa or um, Southeast Asia reads this book, I do believe they will find a lot that will resonate with those milieus. And that's because um, in those milieus, the way that exchange and market and transactional um, practices have unfolded is very much in line with um, our highlight highlighting, for example, of the um, multiple sovereignties which have shaped um, a transactional practice. So if you, if you were to um, write a history of capitalism from, say, um, the Indonesian islands or from uh, contemporary West Africa, um, those are spaces that that um, are no have been for hundreds of years um, confluences of uh, transregional trade. Um, so, you know, they're they're as much as South Asia places where globalization wasn't um, just invented a few decades ago. Um, but also because of the layering of different kinds of um, uh, powers over different times and different kinds of tenure systems, different kinds of um, cosmological practices which have structured exchange, what you find in, in a lot of um, places in the global South is um, a very layered, a very um, a very contested um, uh, arena where exchange unfolds. So, so, and and I think that's very important to highlight uh, in terms of this book and its legibility by other scholars, because um, though it is very anchored empirically in South Asia, the rubrics themselves, um, in terms of pointing to the elasticity of markets, for example, or in pointing to the contested and overlapping jurisdictions um, through which an uh, exchange unfolds, I think that they are very resonant with other parts of the world. So from the translatability and the sort of uh, easy transferability of your book across many different research situations, I will come to very specific uh, research projects that your individual chapters represent. And uh, my first question is to Sebastian. Sebastian, your chapter is called The Artifice of Trust, Reputational and Procedural Registers of Trust in North Indian Informal Finance, and where you talk about trust as an artifact that comprises a multitude of registers in its handling and creation, and the most important of which from the perspective of market participants in modern South Asia relates to its procedural and reputational dimensions. So my question is kind of uh, very specific. If you can speak a little bit more about how local reputational registers work parallelly with system trust, as you put it, on a national level. And have you, have you found parallels between local and national political cultures that influence this process? All right. I'm, I'm not so sure about the last part of that question, but uh, let, let me uh, elaborate a little bit. I mean, to, to some extent, actually, this is uh, uh, the wrong kind of question. Uh, in the way that I approach trust, at least, and I'm aware that uh, there are other scholars who do this differently, uh, but in the way that I approach this topic, um, trust is always something that is rooted in an individual uh, decision-making process. Uh, 
it's an expectation that you have, that you have to convince yourself of that your expectation is actually right. And in that way, it does not really matter uh, whether you are actually having a reputational form of trust or as it's more common to, to, uh, to put some things uh, that are somewhat similar, uh, like a personal uh, trust. Uh, uh, this is how it's very often used in, in sociological literature. And uh, I'm actually having uh, some discussion with this uh, in the chapter that I do not need to, to repeat. Um, in great detail, uh, reputational trust is somewhat different. That is one thing. If you are looking at system trust, it's still something that actually um, starts at the individual level. And it's simply the fact that it's shared among many people or that it's uh, resembling the way that other people are trusting uh, in, in a way that can be aggregated by scholars like us that makes it system trust in that way. Uh, so what you're actually trusting what you've convinced yourself uh, that you should trust, uh, that is uh, still something that, that is very much your idea of something. It's your idea of, of something that is a representation of uh, something that you believe is there. And uh, so in, in that way, basically, uh, like there is a, a kind of uh, problem in, in, in the question as you posed it, basically, there is not so much a difference between the local and the national level uh, in what you're looking at. It's simply a different way of applying trust. So this is why I had been speaking of trust as an artifice. Um, it's uh, for, for that matter, actually, just in order to draw the line back to the study of markets, basically. So uh, markets themselves are an artifice. In many ways, it's a, a, a way of ingenuity among people who are participating in them to make themselves believe that they can actually predict what is happening. Uh, what is happening in the future, this is what makes it possible for you to actually start exchanging. And uh, this is really something that very strongly necessitates to look at trust. Now, of course, I approach this topic from the study of uh, extra-legal financial markets, of uh, money lending, which uh, in India is uh, a criminal activity. It's uh, at least when you're lending to relatively poor strata. Uh, so it's a market that cannot actually um, depend on any forms of uh, state intervention. It cannot enforce credit conditions or obligations uh, through the violence of the state. So instead, you have to, to find some other ways of actually um, making yourself trust what is happening. And you have to do this under really quite adverse uh, conditions because these are highly exploitative markets. Uh, so uh, I, I do not want to mince words about this. So. Uh, it's, it's something that I never believed before uh, I actually started studying them. Uh, the, the level of exploitation is, is just uh, incredible. But um, at the same point of time, you can still seek something in these markets that you can trust. Now, uh, you can find something systemic. And this is what, for example, the Indian state in its modernizing project on credit markets was trying uh, to, to, to propagate. Uh, this is what, what in India is called, is still called organized banking, uh, is actually working on. It's a set of procedures 
imposed by uh, the Indian state in this case um, that uh, actually makes it possible for people to trust. And sometimes uh, you notice that this trust might be misplaced. So this is something that, for example, in a recent crisis in, in, in India is very much visible when the Indian state decided to uh, demonetize uh, high cash denominations and force people to actually uh, uh, like uh, put all these money, uh, they did this, this cash into uh, the, the banking system, uh, overloading the banking uh, system in the process, uh, this trust actually becomes misplaced. So at that point of time, you notice that in the end, trust is just that, it's an expectation. It's something that is an artifice. It's something that you actually have convinced yourself uh, you should actually engage in. Um, so system trust can be very much a wrong individual assessment. And the same goes for the kind of reputational logics of trust uh, that are operational in uh, the, the, the extra legal segment of the market. So the moneylenders, the petty moneylenders uh, that you can observe doing their work uh, in these kind of extra legal credit segments, they work on reputation. They work on a system of reputational gossip uh, that governs these markets. Uh, but at the same point of time, there is just a very, very high rate of failure as there is in all segments of any market. It's something, again, where uh, the way that scholars are thinking of markets is uh, often misguided to some extent because we tend to look at the success stories. We tend to look at what leaves traces. And failure normally does not leave as many traces as success does. So uh, there is quite a lot of failure that actually shapes these artifices uh, of markets and the artifices of trust that actually uh, make up these markets. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sebastian, for clarifying uh, that point. Uh, and I, it really opens up your chapter a new way if you think about uh, trust as something that fundamentally or originates at an individual level. Uh, Ajay, your chapter is um, titled Black Money in India, Fighting Spectres and Fostering Relations. And as you explained right at the beginning when we began, you have been working on black money uh, for quite a while. So I was wondering if you could give us a brief history of the idea of black money as an anti-national entity and in many ways a kind of draining force which succeeds the you know, so-called colonial drain once upon a time. Yeah, um, thank you, Sharnak. Um, just to pick up a little bit off of what Sebastian was saying, that um, one of the really interesting things when I reread the volume and look at the chapters, uh, including Sebastian's chapter and my own, is that um, I think all of the contributors are very alert to the um, constructedness of how these processes um, operate. That is to say that though we bandy about the idea of, say, uh, an Indian market in a singular sense or a stable sense. Um, and though we think of things uh, like money as um, uh, somehow guaranteed and, and sort of having this kind of foundational um, stability, uh, as, he's, as Sebastian has just said, 
they they are really really constructions and so as an anthropologist one of the things that i started to get very interested in as i did my postdoctoral work in central bombay was um the 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 kind of um ordinary um um idioms the 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 symbolic um invocations uh that people used when they spoke about uh, market activity or exchange activity. So th- those of those people that um, work on modern South Asia uh, will probably be somewhat familiar with the fact that spaces like the bazaar um, and practices like uh, money lending, uh, like Sebastian has just discussed, they've typically been associated um, uh, with sort of um, unsavory characters. Um, they've been seen as potentially uh, nefarious activities. They've been seen as um, even um, subversive things. And so because because I think commerce and um, transactional activity, it's, it's regarded with a lot of um, moral ambivalence. Uh, that's something that's also quite prevalent when it comes to things like black money. So black money as an idea and as a, you could say, as a, as a sort of, um, as a, as a repeatedly invoked um, uh, uh, kind of symbolic um, entity, black money um, has for decades been quite um, uh, prevalent in sort of the public sphere in many different, um, uh, through many different political and social periods, it's it's um, continued to be, to have um, different connotations as being subversive of, um, of social um, health, um, to be stymieing national development, and uh, to get to your question, to be indeed anti-national. So, how is it that something that um, we see as sort of the, a means to conduct um, exchange has has come to acquire this um, this kind of bogeyman uh, character, and that and that's what I was trying to get at in the first part of the chapter when I talked about black money as a specter that one has to fight. That if you, it's really interesting that if you look from the mid twentieth century till the present day, including um, this period of demonetization which Sebastian mentioned, um, and which was a very traumatic and disruptive uh, event in the last few years, uh, black money is continually seen as sort of the reason why um, India is not developed, um, why there's not national prosperity. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's a it's a kind of thing that you can uh, point at at um, just to say that okay, there's this um, there's this potential national prosperity or national uh, wealth that has been drained or has been diverted. And so what's fascinating about black money is that because it has this, it's a very uh, wide ranging um, idea. It it can be applied to uh, everything from sort of um, petty bribery to one-off kind of um, uh, instances of sort of uh, official bribery to say um, large scale um, diversion of funds. And this, this I, I mentioned in my chapter um, about how repeatedly um, government figures, officials, academics have, have um, suggested that there's massive amounts of Indian wealth that's located in Swiss bank accounts or in, in vaults in Zurich. Now, What's for me fascinating about 
the the persistence of that idea of its repeated invocation is that um, it's something akin to a very old idea in economic anthropology, which is the idea of a horde. So in most societies, uh, comparatively across time and space, you've had um, notions of a kind of repository of wealth. Um, it may be uh, jewelry, it may be uh, cattle, it depends on the society. And, and that horde is seen as the repository of a kind of inalienable wealth. And I think this is what's really troublesome about um, the idea of black money is that it it connotes precisely a, a horde, a national horde that's being ransacked, that's being diverted. And so the, the symbolically or metaphorically, um, and this is also how it's written about in, in, for example, reports or academic publications, the image one gets is of sort of a nation that is being bled dry, um, who, whose kind of vitality is being drained. So it's, it's fascinating just to see the symbolic and moral connotations that attend uh, a transactional sphere that um, you you would ordinarily not see uh, used in such kind of hyperbolic and and sort of um, high temperature terms. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that uh, when you said you know the nation is being bled dry, that's exactly the image that uh, is used in uh, that Norji uses and the you know conversations, economic conversations before independence. It continuously refers to uh, this this image and this metaphor of of bleeding as uh you know one of which is draining the nation of economic vitality so it's 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 curious how that idea has traveled um my final question for the day is um sort of bipartite firstly uh where do you see both of you scholarship in this broad area is going is you know at this time uh and of course relatedly what are your own plans in terms of, you know, projects that would continue this work and also um, develop and derive from this work? Uh, Ajay, do you want to come in first? Sure. Um, about about this, you know, very broad um, area, I, you know, it's very important to, to uh, reiterate, um, Sharnik, that we're, we are very much um, building on um, a set of scholars that have um, in economic history, in economic anthropology, in um, heterodox economics, uh, in development studies, been trying to think about these issues and been thinking about them and their intellectual and their political stakes. And um, as I've mentioned before, the, the current farmers' protests. Um, Sebastian has mentioned the the uh, demonetization controversy. So, I think one of the really one of to me one of the um, uh, takeaways from the volume is that it's very resonant and very um, it's very relevant to what's happening contempt in a contemporary sense in South Asia. I, I do not think that. Um, I think the intersection of regulation of morality, um, the the both the durability of certain transactional idioms and spheres, um, as well as their mutability and and their flexibility. I think the things that we're trying to point to um, in contemporary South Asia, they are not going to go away anytime soon. And and if anything. Um, the book is coming in at a moment where I think that we really need to have more conversations about about that. I do think one of the curious things about 
um, the commercial or economic sphere in South Asia is that it's generally been seen in scholarly or or intellectual terms as um, perhaps not as lively or interesting or relevant as say um, religion or um, ethnicity um, or uh, politics. But I do think that you know that conversation needs to there needs to be more more people that are doing more detailed. Uh, archival and ethnographic work and and furthering um, what's happening here. Just in terms of two things that as I reflect on the volume and on things that interest me personally, um, that I I would like to see um, done or to perhaps um, have a hand in doing myself. Um, I'm very fascinated uh, as an anthropologist, I've always been really fascinated by um, the conceptual or the symbolic dimensions of social life, and I and I think that as I reflect more on um, the volume as a whole and on other scholarship, I do think there's more to be done in um, thinking through the ways that um, long-standing, uh, very anchored idioms and categories and concepts around, say risk and speculation and arbitrage, how those have um, had a, had quite a bit of vitality and sometimes intersected with um, uh, more, um, uh, more modern or more state-directed notions. So I, I would actually really like to see um, maybe the, the fields that we are broadly working in engage a bit more with the kind of conceptual history of these ideas and to really also see, for example, in Sebastian's chapter, um, he's working a little bit with this idea that's very pervasive in, in North India, in Hindi, of vishwas, of, of trust, and the way that trust is operational, uh, both as a kind of regulatory idea, as a regulatory principle, but also as a moral principle. And I think that there's much more to be done in um, kind of unpacking those fears, because if you look at uh, not not just the Hindi uh, public sphere, but at many other public spheres um, in India, uh, India is a, a very vast and has a very complex um, set of overlapping spheres in the sense those languages are very vibrant and, and they still haven't been, I think, sufficiently probed. So that's one area that I think that more can be done. And um, I would also think that more can be done in thinking about the resonance of um, some of the things we're pointing to uh, beyond this, the territorial sphere of India itself. So one of the, the things, um, I guess, that's that's in the volume that we're doing is we are using, of course, India as a, as a frame, as a, as a geographical frame, as a political frame, as a regulative frame. Um, but if you look at uh, India historically, at, at the ways in which, say, circulations um, uh, of transactions was done, whether it's of um, finance and investment or debt or e even things like labor markets um, with the, the history of millions of indentured laborers going overseas from the 19th century. I do think there's much more to be done in sort of um, thinking about India as a, itself as a more elastic category in an economic sense, right? So how, how did um, mobility and um, regulation and the flows of objects, people, um, uh, things, ideas, how did they all come to to um, 
to be in this kind of more expansive sense. I think that would be something that there would be definitely more that we can do uh, about that as a, as a, you know, as a, a scholarly community. Maybe just uh, briefly to, to, to add to this. So uh, there, there, there are so many different dimensions that you can look at uh, when you're looking at markets, uh, when you're looking at exchange. And uh, really something that uh, Ajay just said basically is, is very important here. There is uh, no reason why it should only be looked at uh, from particular disciplines, why it should only be looked at from within the idea of this being a kind of discrete uh, sub-discipline. So uh, I was pointing out Pujit Mukherjee in the beginning of uh, this, this uh, interview, uh, but look at uh, one of the, the other contributors that we're having, uh, Andy Rodman, who's a, a very well-known scholar of Buddhism. Um, but he's also worked on uh, the, the Bazaar in Benares for a long time, time and he knows so much about these markets and there's something really refreshing about the way that uh, he coming from religious studies is actually approaching the idea of exchange the idea of a market um, and uh, so so i think we should also try to get away from uh, the idea that once you're working on economic anthropology or economic history then this is the only thing that you're working on and you should uh, try to reach out to, to other scholars. And then, after all, I mean, the, the, these markets are so complex that uh, there are so many angles that you can look at uh, the market from. Uh, so what about, let's say, uh, the, the aesthetics of exchange or generativity or uh, something like that, basically? Look at retail as not only the passing off of goods from one uh, end to the other, basically, but you're looking at it as something that is based on communication that actually establishes uh, the meaning of a particular product uh, in this exchange, in this communication between the retailer and the consumer. Um, so, so these are questions that I, I would uh, definitely like to take up at, uh, at some point of time and uh, we'll definitely keep on working on uh, topics like this also in the future and we're trying to bring together uh, uh, people again and again uh, to, to, to uh, work on these kind of topics and try to uh, take a very broad uh, approach to it. That is a wonderful uh, note to end on and thank you so much Ajay and Sebastian to talking to us about this wonderful new book and congratulations again on the publication. Thank you. Thank you, Sharnak. Thank you, Sharnak. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.